Yeah, how's your paper going? Oh, I am way behind where I'm supposed to be at, but it's okay. Welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. I'm Rebecca. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kalo. All right. So we've been talking for a while. Forgot to do that. Some of it might make it in. Some of it not. So we'll see. Whoever whoever edits this podcast will decide. Which basically means that we are submitting to Caleb's authority. Right, Lindsay? <laughs> yeah, see, I don't even know who edits this podcast anymore. Because like two weeks in a row, I've been like taking super long. Yeah, I'm going to defer all my responsibility to anything I say to Caleb as a woman because he's the one editing the podcast. Therefore, now I don't have to be responsible for my godliness. I can just trust Aunt Caleb to do it all for me. <laughs> it's true. And I'll just like cut your voice to make you say things that are like whatever you say is all my editing. Like you didn't actually say those things. You have plausible deniability. Yeah, I never had to be responsible for myself. I can always just blame it on a dude. There you go. That's what submission means, right? <laughs> <sighs> anyway too much mark twain i'm sorry y'all <laughs> yeah no we were just reading uh or i was just looking at some of the results of the survey that i did of ag pastors and it's kind of saddening i mean the majority of the responses are okay but like there's a big enough percentage that answered in a way that it just makes me sad so i'm probably going to be depressed for the rest of this but that's okay because it's 2020 and that's sort of the state of most of the year See, I'm not, I'm not depressed anymore. I'm like Psalms 137. <laughs> I'm just constantly disappointed by people who should know better. So um, my dad actually like sent me a link on Facebook Messenger. I don't look at a lot of what he sends me, but some of them are just like funny memes. Some of them are, you know, other things. It was a, an article on Christianity.com of should women be pastors? And he was like, I tried to read some of this, but got mad. Like, that's all he wrote. And I was like, um, yeah, I don't need to raise my blood pressure. Like, I, I deal with this enough every day. And he's like, sorry, but it bothered me too. And I was like, yeah, in general, I just try not to read them anymore because it's just not worth my stress level. Except I think what's unfortunate, and I just opened the link for the first time, is that I'm pretty sure this is written from a woman, which makes it even worse. Well, she's not responsible because a guy in her life told her to say that. So it's fine, remember? <laughs> yeah, she's under the authority of some dude. You should you should share it. You should send it here. We'll put it in the show notes. If people want to get depressed, they can read it. <sighs> anyway, now that we're even more depressed, is our Did You Know going to depress us too? Or will it make us laugh? Because... Oh, you know, it'll be good. Man plummets into sinkhole as he waits for bus. Finds horror below. This is like a stuff of nightmares and a Grey's Anatomy episode. This has already been the year of nightmares, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised that it continues. <laughs> like, Yeah, so there's a link in the show notes to a video. I don't want to watch that. Feel free to go watch the video. It's to a news thing. But a New York City man was waiting for a bus recently when he fell into a sinkhole that held another horrific surprise for him. A swarm of rats. That is not good. Leonard Shoulders suffered a broken arm and broken leg in the 12 to 15 foot plummet after the ground gave way on a Bronx sidewalk. He couldn't move and the rats were crawling all over him. He didn't scream because he didn't want the rats to go into his mouth. Woo! 
See, the problem is like rats are actually really smart, wonderful animals. They are. I love rats, but... Not swarms of them. But yeah, that... <sighs> and it took a half an hour to rescue him. Mm-hmm. So, which makes me wonder. I bet, I mean, rats, like, like Lindsay was just saying, rats aren't dumb. So I feel like they probably like swarmed all over him and then were like, oh, snap, like this is... Well, he fell onto their home. Like he fell into where they live. Right, but I'm just, I'm assuming that then they like made haste and like peaced out. And so hopefully he, he wasn't swarmed for the entire half an hour he was waiting to be rescued. Probably. They're not afraid of like anything. They're basically fearless. Yeah, like to me, like that is just terrifying. Um, there's a quote here that says the rats down there were ridiculous. They were so big. So apparently they were rather large size rats. Of course, it's it's the Bronx. So, you know, they've got pretty good size rats. Now, to talk about the state of the world through this article. A couple of years ago, the sidewalk there was cited as needing repairs. No sh- <laughs> Sorry, but like, <laughs> it opened into a sinkhole. Like, of course it's in need of repairs. <laughs> what the hell, New York? But they knew, right? This is not like... It's not like they didn't know that this was a problem. Years ago, they knew that the sidewalk needed repaired. And um, in in New York, that's on the property owners to fix. And uh, there's not a system in place for the property owners to um, be enforced to actually fix those kinds of things. So that's fun. Right, because is the sidewalk actually property of the landlord? Like, Yeah, it's the landowner's property. It's the landowner's property because oftentimes sidewalks are public. Like it's the county or the city's job to fix it. But ooh, they're going to be in trouble. In New York City, it is the responsibility of the landowner to maintain the sidewalk. I think it's like that for us too. Like, even though it's like an easement, so I can't do anything to it. Like it's still, I have to like keep it like shovel and stuff, right? Like my sidewalk, if someone slips and falls on it, on our sidewalk, like I'm supposed to po- like keep it clean and not this, the city. They don't come through the sidewalks. They just do the roads. But if you, if you watch the video there, you just see the dude walk outside and then all of a sudden he just drops into the ground and, and people see it happen and rush over there and, you know, talk to him and the, you know, you can see dozens of firefighters come and get him out and all of that. But, you know, I just I just feel like this is a perfect picture of 2020. Everybody knew the problems were there, did nothing to fix it. And then we freak out when somebody falls into a hole. We've tried nothing and are out of ideas. Oh. See, the snark in me is like, well, it's okay, Caleb, the free market will fix it, right? That it fixes everything. We don't have to, like, enforce anything because people will just intrinsically do the right thing even if it costs them money. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Capitalism will fix the sidewalks. I just don't know how to not be snarky anymore. It's all I've got left to snark. Clearly, because... Do you hear the people sing? Singing the songs of angry men. <laughs> oh, now we're turning into a musical podcast. No, that one ends really badly for them. And that's how I feel 2020 is going. So it's the appropriate revolution to choose. But especially when you realize how badly it ends for those students having that, like... Nothing changes, like most of them die. Okay, you know what, but it's a great song. It is a great song. It's a fantastic song. Man. All right, so now that we've been nice and uplifting with the man falling into a sidewalk, what, they lifted him up? That's uplifting. They got they got him out. Well, and, but it, it, it being a commentary on the state of the world of 2020 is a little bit demoralizing. <laughs> Well, that's that's how I look at the world. So, you know, I was talking to somebody about Star Wars and explaining how I see Star Wars all as political commentary. So, like, that's 
I, I do that with everything. Okay, is it crazy to you that in the first three Star Wars movies, the space Nazis are the villains and there's aliens everywhere, right? They're like xenophobic space Nazis. And then in the new Star Wars movies, supposedly they beat the space Nazis, but there are like literally no aliens anywhere. It's all just people. And you're like, oh, look, the Empire must have won because now they're all super xenophobic and there are no actual like aliens. It is just a whole bunch of like mostly space Nazi people running around. And you're like, this is concerning. <laughs> is it just me? Maybe I'm just overthinking that, right? But it's like, I think that to some extent you're overthinking that. Like, but there's there's no hardly any aliens. Like, think about like, so in the sequel trilogy, but think about Mandalorian versus sequel trilogy. Mando, there's not much, but there's more of them in the background stuff. Like, you may have some primary aliens, but like they exist all around in the world, right? Whereas in the sequel trilogy, they're almost no, the newest, the so the last three. There are hardly any. It's anytime there's background, there's not like this like wild universe of like things. It's all mostly white people. I don't know that that's quite fair, right? Because you have at Mazas, there's lots of aliens. That one place run by an, that's okay. They're separate but equal then. Like, well, no, because because where it focuses on is not in those spaces. It's the rebellion, which is all the people, because you know the people are going to save the world. But there was even more. There was more aliens in in the rebellion in, in the first ones. Well, yeah, but they're all dead. Well, yeah, it's because they basically made all of the other characters terrible. But like you had like I'm salty about it because I think it, I think it's interesting and it's telling about how we don't even realize that we like accidentally space Nazi'd, right? Like, well, I. I don't know that we did though, right? Because there are still lots of aliens. They're just not inside of the rebellion against the First Order as much. So the good guys are now not fighting the xenophobic people? <laughs> well, in episode eight at the casino, there's aliens there. Enslaved by the people for the most part. Yeah, because war profiteers are white guys. How did we get here? Hold on, hold the phone. How did we, what just happened? How media can be a reflection of unconscious bias and the zeitgeist of the age. I just mentioned that I take everything and I look at it through a weird lens. So I was talking to somebody about how I look at Star Wars as political commentary. And then we went off on a rabbit trail about some very specific details of that. That was very interesting. I was agreeing with Hila that you can totally read Star Wars. It's like similarly Star Trek can be done that way because even though they're not super stereotypy in their actual main characters, all of their main alien races use like very recognizable stereotypes to define them. Like the Klingons, the Ferengi, the Romulans and the Vulcans. They're not even subtle. Right. And Star Trek is all a commentary about no matter how much civilization advances, we still have to deal with the animal inside of us and blah de blah de blah Which is why Deep Space Nine is great. I've not watched it. I've Okay, I've only watched like three episodes of the original Star Trek, but that's enough for me to like see that what it is and, you know. All right. So with all of that, I don't know how much of that's going to stay in. <laughs> okay. So, the, oh. I keep forgetting that we have transition music. Yeah, it, well, so the benefit of the transition music is it gives me a nice place to see, ah, that's where we change topics. That makes sense. I like that. When I'm editing, it, it just makes it easier to edit. Okay, so this week in our little sphere of pastor peeps, we're all going to get depressed again. But we're not talking about the election, so that's good. Right, this is actually not about the election. We'll end up there, you know we will. Well, because I might not have it edited in time for any commentary to matter, so that's why we're not. Oh. Um. So there's multiple comments conversation 
conversations that went on within our group of pastor friends regarding what has uh, become known as the Billy Graham rule. Um, it, if you are listening and you don't know what that is, consider yourself lucky. Well, that too. But well, wait, no, no, maybe not consider yourself lucky because maybe you're a woman and you've not had a name for the oppression you've felt for all of your life. That's fair. So um, part of the reason why I got lost in your guys' Star Wars socioeconomic stereotype tangent was because I was like reading the more of the history on the Billy Graham rules. Then all of a sudden I like, came back to the conversation and was like, what? Oh, you were looking at the Modesto Manifesto and all of that? Yes, I was. So the history of the Billy Graham rule is that Billy Graham and three of his buddies like came up with it as an accountability agreement between the four of them that covered like their interactions with women, but also in regards to like their finances, um, how they interacted with local churches um, and the publicity that they did. So it was actually a fourfold, like there was, there was multiple levels to it. It wasn't just that. How it has manifested itself today is, um, and it kind of came back in popularity um, in conversation at least because Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence also adheres to this rule that, to or to a rule like it, that says that he won't have, like, wouldn't have a one-on-one meal with a woman that wasn't his wife. And so he kind of came under fire for that. And so how this has translated into mostly just church culture is pastors, primarily men, or just because most percent of our fellowship are male pastors, is is holding really tightly to like not meeting with or spending time with women with the opposite sex that's not their spouse or without a third person there. So that's the summary of what the Billy Graham rule is. And I, th- I think the interesting thing about the Billy Graham rule is that on the surface, it doesn't sound like a bad idea. I disagree with that assessment. <laughs> the moment you're treating a person intrinsically as a risk because of who they are, there is no way to, to have that be a healthy rule. Okay, so the purpose of the Billy Graham rule is to avoid it appearing as though they're doing something wrong, right? Like it is supposed to keep the accusation from being made that they're having an affair or inappropriate relations with somebody else. And I think that we do need to have systems in place to keep that accusation from being made. Like, I think everybody should have that. Wouldn't that just be the character enough that if an accusation is made, there are enough people who can witness your actual character to be like, something's going on here, right? Like, I think that, no, you should also have systems. I think systems are good because like, I like systems. I'm a system person. But what those systems are should not treat somebody differently because they're a woman. Like, I think that's deeply problematic, right? First off, homosexuality is a thing, right? If I refuse to meet with Lindsay because she is a woman, but I would just as happily go and grab dinner with her husband, like in today's day and age? Who knows? (laughs) There's just as much possibility of something happening the other way. Like I'm mistreating Lindsay and acting as though I'm concerned that something's going to happen or that there's going to be an accusation. And that's that's not okay. So here's my pushback, Lindsay, on you saying like, your character should speak enough. In theory, I, on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, I think that's it's really idealistic to say that the way that the Billy Graham rule is often instituted in our churches is rooted in fear. And so that's bad and terrible. And it's rooted in that fear because there have been enough situations where there have been false accusations. See, but that's, but I'm not afraid of men, right? Like I'm way more likely to be molested by one of these pastors than I am, they are to be falsely accused. Like 
exponentially more so. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I'm maybe just sitting on the moderate fence here and trying to understand how it has gotten to this place because it is so rooted in that fear. What's well, fear is not logical. You know, it's just like... It isn't, right? It There's a concern with losing their power. And at the same time, there is the very real possibility of being accused. And like, I, I don't think that we can discount that entirely. So there's systems in place, right? Like... I'm not going to meet in a building by myself with somebody of the opposite sex for hours at a time. And it's not like having checks in place and having other people know that we're there and things like that. Like, let's not lock ourselves in a room with a bed for hours. <laughs> like, you know, like, That's let's a make it extreme. That's a specific situation. <laughs> and at the same time, why in the world would I not grab coffee with somebody of the opposite sex or meet to do all of those types of things? Like, let's be reasonable. Let's not meet in a closed room for hours because I won't do that with a guy outside of, you know, like a counseling session or something like that where there's always somebody else in the next room over that knows that we're there. Like, I'm not going to do that with a girl or a guy, but I'll meet with either one of them at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. I think that's a significant thing, right? Like I have no problem with protecting vulnerable populations, right? So when I used to work with, and you work with kids, right? Like mm -hmm. you never have kids alone with an adult ever, right? Like if you can help it. Unless it's a counseling type situation and there's somebody in the next room and like all of those things, but there's precautions. Yeah, like when I worked at camp, like we always had to have two counselors. Like you had to like, yeah, it was inconvenient sometimes, but like you never left kids in a vulnerable situation where they were could be taken advantage of right which is different because it was all kids right it was everyone and it's like what you just said too right you're like i wouldn't do this with anyone and i feel like that is the important distinction between we talk about having systems in place it's like we need to treat all people right and it's like and it can't just be generalized based on gender right because there's people i know and some, there's some people i know and they are sketchy and i'm like i will not meet alone with you <laughs> right like and it's not because of it could be a guy or it could be a girl i'm like you it is not wise for me to meet you alone, right? Like some you're, and that, that's different than assuming that every single man I meet, right? Or every single woman that a guy meets is going to be untrustworthy, especially when it comes to your peers, right? People who are also in ministry. Yeah, I think that a lot of times in the church for a desire to have rules that are just across the board, we have, we've kind of screwed up and uh, and, re and and not recognize that there has to be nuance, there has to be shades of gray, because because each person is different, each situation is different, and we want to have like a flat. On the one hand, I agree with you, Caleb, on systems. On the other hand, if we try and do one rule across the board, that also can be too limiting or or, or be too restrictive. And I, the only reason why I say that is because, like for example, I I tend to more ascribe to the, like the heebie-jeebie rule. Yeah, this person sketches me out. <laughs> Yeah, like, and, and, and it could be male or female. Pr primarily it's male, uh, just because... I mean, the, the heebie-jeebie rule for me is tend it tends to be male, so I yeah. think... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, a guy came into the church, um, like, I don't know, six months or so ago, and he's kind of well-known within our city, and but not quite sure where he falls in, like, the safety or, like, substance abuse 
levels of things. And so he was asking for a ride to the bus station to go to another city to see his daughter. And I was like, yeah, I am not giving this person a ride. I mean, I didn't say that to him, but I I said, I have other meetings today, but let me, let me find someone. Um, and so I called one of our like big former motorcycle dude guys who lives right down the street from the church and said, hey, like, could you give this guy a ride to the bus station? Because it's just not safe for me or it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a wise choice. But the other issue is like the lack of consistency, especially with ministers about like how the, how this rule is instituted. Mm-hmm. For example, it seems like some of the older generation has the idea that it's like worse to meet in public because then you're seen because then it's like, it's not about avoiding evil, just the appearance of evil, not actual evil. <laughs> well, and, and so it's a weird, which is weird, but I think, and I think that's a generational thing because it was unusual for, for some who is now in their 50s or 60s, when they were in their 20s and 30s, they didn't have actual friendships with the opposite sex. So seeing someone like routinely meet in a public place that people would see them like would get the rumor mill going like, why are they meeting? Where like now, if I feel like if someone saw Gary and I meeting every week on Tuesdays at the local coffee shop, like they know we work together, like this is clearly our meeting, right? Um, similarly, but like the older generation seems to think, well, it's better to like meet secretly. No, not secretly, but just like meet at the church, have the doors open, you're interruptible, but you're not like flaunting it to spark the rumor mill or something. And again, I, I, I really feel like that's a generational difference because of the, of the difference in how men and women like had actual friendships. I'm glad Jesus didn't follow the Billy Graham rule. Well, yeah, that too. Right? Like not only did he meet like he's accused of being a drunkard and hanging out with sinners and all of these like he didn't even like we always we talk about like trying to avoid the appearance of evil and that doesn't seem to be a concern that jesus ever had ever (laughs) right like he's hanging out with all these sketchy people right like and he gets accused of being a drunkard and all these things and he's like you're not like a holy person you're hanging out with the wrong people to be a holy person and he's like y'all misunderstood everything you know and he talks to samaritan woman at the well right and all of the implications that could be going on there with regardless of if she's actually like the prostitute that some people imply that she might be the odds are also just high that she was just barren and she kept being abandoned and her life was just sucked right Right? And like, we don't see Jesus worried about people accusing him of hanging out with the wrong people because his character was such, right? Again, it's like, holy, like just like, and like, obviously he's Jesus, but at the same time, we're also told to be holy, like he is holy and do all these things and you can, he's given power and authority. Like, so either men are capable of having headship or they can't be trusted around women, but they can't both be true. <laughs> that got kind of off topic, but. <laughs> okay. So I, I think that there still is a, a real and valid concern about false accusation, right? I've definitely, seen people affected by false accusations that are demonstrably false Mm -hmm. but that can still wreak havoc on life and ministry for years or decades and the emotional toll of that can be very real so i i don't want to say that you should then go and meet with people in there's some places and some things that you shouldn't do that but that's also not a reason to tell 50 percent of the population i cannot help you to grow as a minister or as a pastor because it might look like something's happening. Like, Rebecca, you said that you can't have rules. And and my solution, rather than to go that way of saying you have to just live in a gray area, is to say that there is a lot of rules, right? I'm going to have a different set of rules of for meeting with fellow pastors 
than I am with some random person that's just visited my church once. I'm going to do different levels of things with volunteers than I am with paid staff, right? Like there's rather than limited in that way, I'm going to do things differently. And I am a big fan of gender neutral policies on those things. I, I do not treat women differently than I treat men in, in terms of those things, because that's just insane. Like, no, if we believe that women are able to do all aspects of ministry, why would we disqualify them from training or mentorship or any of those things? Like, there's not any reason to do that, especially since there can be ways in place that, like, nobody's going to think you're out having sex if you're sitting at Starbucks and everybody sees you at Starbucks. Like, that's not how that works. I think I think the problem, the reason I push back against it so hard is because humans are really bad at estimating risk and evaluating risk because, so there's an organization called RAIN, right? And it's about sexual violence. And out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. Only 230 actually eventually make it to the police, 46 lead to arrest, 9 get to prosecutors, and 4.6 people who actually rape someone will actually go to jail. So we are misrepresenting the danger, right? And it exists, but the problem is we're focusing on the wrong thing and we're dealing with a, we're not addressing the right thing. So just being worried about false accusations doesn't actually address any of the problems. You know, it's not dealing with the root of the issue. It's just dealing with the symptom and it's honestly dealing with the wrong symptom. I don't, I'm going to disagree with you again. I don't think that addressing the issue of it looking like a problem, I don't think that that's in any way an issue. I think that has to be done regardless, right? I, I think that that is separate from the unwillingness to mentor people. I'm just saying, I think the problem is, is we are mis, we have, I think we have misrepresented how risky it is. It's like what one in four women have been assaulted in their lifetime. Yeah. I'm not worried about the person who I meet with accusing me of something like her and I are both going to know that nothing happened. Right. Mm -hmm. I would be much more worried about some third party seeing that and starting accusations. So you've got to have systems in place because that has the potential to really derail things. I appreciate what you said, Kayla, from the standpoint of like, of instead of having no rules and like living in that gray area, like have, having just lots of lots of them in different sets. And that's more, I think we're basically saying we believe the same thing. We're just saying it differently in, in that each unique situation. Lily, leave the pug alone. Like in, in every every situation is unique or every relationship interaction is different. And and, and I do I want I, I do wonder how much of this and because there has been this like this has been built into evangelical culture of like this fearfulness of of the other, right? Of the opposite sex, of fearfulness about falling in falling into sin because apparently you just trip and fall, which is a whole other conversation. But and how much of this then also has been reinforced by women and by wives in particular of pastors, of male pastors, because the. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I know. Sorry. I'm like, this is, this points out some things that I like cracks me up. Okay. Continue. Sorry. I got really excited. <laughs> but it just, so, so we have to change at the base level. We have to change this suspicion of that, that following the Billy Graham rule somehow makes my marriage adultery proof, which is just not the case. It's a false, like whatever logistical fallacy that is that I can't think of right now. Uh, I mean, somebody asked me once, like, well, what would you think if someone like called you and said, 
that they saw Nate having lunch with or having a meal with another woman. And I was like, well, I'd assume it was one of his coworkers that they had just gotten back yeah, from. I trust you know, my spouse. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or if somebody said to Nate, hey, I saw Rebecca meeting with so-and-so, he'd be like, that, yeah, that sounds about right. But it has been reinforced then also, frankly, by the wives who like have this, I, I feel like at times have like a holier than thou, I have to protect my husband and my marriage. And so he's doing this, he's sacrificing this uh, convenience for our marriage. When really what you're doing is you are basically making other ministers, you're making them... Um, you're directly impacting their ability to walk out the call of God because you are feel fearful in some way for your marriage. And I just can't with that. Well, I think it's hilarious because it's like either like the survey you were talking, Caleb, that you had, like either they like, it's funny to me that the same people who are like usually super complimentarian often espouse the Billy Graham rule because somehow women are incapable of being in any kind of leadership position, but also men are incapable of like doing anything responsibly. And I'm like, one of these things is not like the other, right? Like you can't, you can't have both of those statements be true. Either he's capable of, granted, I'm egalitarian, so I think multiple problems are wrong with that, right? But it's crazy to me that somehow, like, we've made that an acceptable way to, like, be a pastor. Like, I've heard pastors and I, the group that we're a part of talk about how, well, the rule's not for them, it's for the other women. I'm like, wait, you have so little self-control that you're going to hit on me because I'm a woman? Like, what? And this is somehow acceptable? Like, no. So here's the thing about the Billy Graham rule, right? I think that the Billy Graham rule, for the reason that it was put in place, is not that bad, right? Like, I think it's important to not look like you're doing things that are sexual immorality. And Billy Graham had good reasons for needing his rule, actually. Right. But I think that there is an issue that comes in place when you implement the Billy Graham rule not to avoid the appearance of sexual immorality, but your ability to fall into it. Like, that's a big difference. If you're not meeting with women because you might want to have sex with them, that's very different than not meeting with somebody in a private place because somebody thinks that's what you're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. The difference is absolutely huge. And like, I'm a fan of having rules to not have the appearance of things, right? I'm not going to fly to California and stay with one of my friends who is a single lady, even though I know her and she has a guest room. Like, I'm not going to do that, right? Like, there's something to having an appearance. I'm going to stay in a hotel, even if I'm having a conference in the same city. Like, let's not be stupid here because that looks like something else could be happening. Am I worried about something happening if I did that? Heck no. If I was worried about something else happening like that, I shouldn't be a pastor. Yeah. And, and I like, I, the only time that this, the Billy Graham rule has really impacted me is not, has not been like because of jobs or anything, but it was like driving to our, our network conference a couple of years ago. It was a four hour drive and my lead pastor wanted, it was like, if we can find somebody else to drive with us, it'd be nice to be able to carpool so we don't have to spend gas on multiple cars. But like, we probably need a third person. And I was like, why? Because it was like, well, it wasn't weird until you just made it weird. Um, and, and, and I was like, that's not weird to me, you know, to like go on a four hour road trip with you. Like, that's not, he's like, oh, it's not weird to me either. It's more, it's the appearance of something, of somebody being like weirded out by it. See, I think that might be, like your pastor sounds great, but I think that's almost taking it too far again. You know, like it's a road trip with colleagues. Like there's a difference if you're, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, you're going to a conference. I. I understand that. And I understand why it seems too extreme. 
And I was irritated by it too. Cause I was like, really? I have to drive by myself for four hours. Yeah. Which would not happen to him. And like, this is why women aren't in ministry. Like we don't have any examples because there's no one to do it because like. Right. And, and okay. So I understand his apprehension there, but I also would not ride in a car with another guy for that same four hours because I'm going to at least be consistent on that, right? If I wouldn't do it with a girl because I would be concerned about that, I'm not going to do that same thing with a guy. Right, but most ministers are not that consistent, Caleb. I am aware that I am remarkably consistent compared to most people, okay? I work really hard at that and I recognize that nobody else is willing to act, well, not nobody, but most people are not willing to actually do the hard work of doing what they say they're going to do. Well, even Billy Graham wasn't consistent with the Billy Graham rule. The moment it put him at a disadvantage, he met with Hillary, Hillary Clinton, right? Like he only used it when he was the, the power position, but he wouldn't, but the, what do we have any examples of a woman who is not the president, like a vice president or married to a president? or secretary of state or something like that, right? Like any non-powerful woman that Billy Graham was willing to meet with in public where he was the one at the power disadvantage. And my initial research had said, no, we do not, right? He basically, the moment it would actually put him at the disadvantage versus disadvantaging the woman, he met with her even in public, but he wouldn't do that with other women in public. And I mean, that's what bothers me is like the moment it cost him something versus costing the woman a mentor, he found a way to be a, get around it. The, the thing that I would say to you, if anybody like listening who is diehard Billy Graham rule or needs to feel well, and, and I mean, like, I think I think the main takeaways here is like, whatever your rule is about meeting with people privately or not, it needs to be consistent between the genders. Okay. And and there's a second point, which Lindsay was just at really good there. But I just realized I might have interrupted Rebecca if she wasn't done. So go ahead. I was not done. But that's okay. Because you know, Typical, um, typical man. Wait, no, hold on. That is not just me. Lindsay does the same thing because you have really long pauses. Someone's done talking. I'm like, my turn. I'm excited to contribute. <laughs> I mean, I do it too, right? So, <laughs> um, this is why we can do this is because none of us actually take it personally. But it's just more fun to, it's more fun to like say that Caleb's just like mansplaining or, you know. Oh, I mean, I usually do, but I... I am no respecter of genders when it comes to mansplaining. I mansplain to men just as much. It's true. Um, number one, whatever your guideline is regarding your your own personal rule, whether you you know are, are going to call it the Billy Graham rule, whether you're going to call it the heebie-jeebie rule, whether you're going to call it the Caleb Cook rule, like be have it be consistent between the genders. And if you are setting a boundary that says, I will not, like, I won't drive with a female to a meeting, for example, because that has been one that I've heard a lot of in my area, then it is your job to find the third person to meet with you. Do not put it on, if you're a guy who particularly is going to say, I won't have coffee one-on-one with another female, period, then it is your job to find the third person when, when those meetings happen or when those meetings, those opportunities happen. Do not put the burden of uh, protection or whatever on the person you are meeting with, because that's just poopy. Or don't do that. You're meeting in a public place. Nobody's going to think you're having sex if you're in a public place. That's not a thing. Yeah, I see. I have a hard, yeah, I have a hard time allowing grace for the Billy Graham rule because I'm like, it is intrinsically scarring. It, but for some, if you're meeting... For some, that's what they need to do, or that's the expectation that has been put on them by their board or their 
church leadership or their whatever. So we need to deal with the sin issue of not seeing women as people made in the image of God and not deal with the surface issue of I can't be seen with a woman. And I'm going to call it a sin issue. It is. And I'm with you. I'm just saying if for, for people who are maybe not as far along in their... Uh... No, they need to catch up. They need to catch up to the level where we are immediately. We have no patience for this. We have no patience and no grace. Okay, good. That was, sarc- that was sarcastic there if you're listening. There's some amount of patience. Lindsay has patience too. I had one other like main takeaway that now I forgot because I got distracted by the sin issue of women not being intrinsically valued. Good, because I have another point. I'll probably remember it and then interrupt you. So there's also the power dynamic at play here too, right? If if your rule does not apply to those who both have more power and less power than you, there is a problem, right? So Lindsay brought it up with Billy Graham still meeting with Hillary Clinton, but not meeting with other women. Like that is a problem. Just because she's in power doesn't mean that you got to treat that you can treat her different. You don't get to do that as a Christian. You don't get to treat the people in power differently than you treat everybody else. We treat everybody with humility, everybody with love, everybody with care. We don't get to do that. And I think that that is a big part of the problem, right? Pastors are people in authority, but we don't get to hold that authority over people. That's not how it works, or at least that's not how it should work. And I think that is fundamentally a large amount of the issue that goes on around the Billy Graham rule is people using their position of authority to say, oh, I can't do this thing because I'm an authority and it might look evil, but you would be okay with somebody else doing that. And that is a problem. Or the moment it costs you, your convictions cost you something, then you cave on them. Right, that's both. You don't get to do that, right? But you don't you don't get to treat people differently just because they're higher up or lower than you on some worldly power structure. That's contrary to the ethic of the kingdom. Isn't there something about that in like James and favoritism and... Yeah, it's almost like we talked about this in the Bible. It's almost like that's biblical. That's <sighs> almost like it's all over throughout the Old and New Testament consistently in all of the prophets. And it's... and. Yeah, that's the problem. You don't get to do that. I don't actually read my Bible. Most people don't. Oh, I remembered my other point. Okay, go ahead. And I might stick it back earlier or I'll keep it here. We'll see. Okay. I was going to say, uh, in regards to like how the Billy Graham rule then plays out in, in marriage relationships, I think we have this really skewed understanding of like human attraction to each other like the fact we've made made an assumption that just because if you if you have an attraction to someone that automatically means you're going to try something and so like that has to be avoided and we have maybe perpetuated this idea within marriage in the church that you'll never find another human attractive again ever or never be attracted to someone even on uh, like personality wise or whatever ever again either and that is I think because we're not able to like address it openly, it doesn't get, we haven't modeled how to like deal with that within marriage in a healthy, non-threatening sort of way. And I mean, it's something uh, because then if when I or Nate or like Lindsay or Brett, because then it, it feeds into this idea that, oh, I've found this other person attractive or I have this like connection with this other guy that inherently means that there's something wrong in my marriage. And that's just not necessarily the case. It's not logical. Yeah, it's not logical. How you respond to that 
attraction is the bigger issue and like how you handle it. When Nate and I were dating, we had, we'd been together for over a year at this point and he went on a spring break outreach trip to Canada and I stayed home. Like I didn't go on one that year and he experienced like there was another girl on the team that he was like then felt felt himself drawn to because it was like I wasn't there. He was used to having a female companion to to talk to but he realized it like and and he realized his like why that why there was the issue there and when he came back we had a really frank conversation about it and he was like I struggled with this because of x y and z but there was no number one there was no action number two it was just like oh this is a this is a thing that can happen and does happen in even in committed relationships. And this is before we were married. So like we learned how to like address that issue. And then there was, um, there've been other situations as well that we've just addressed openly. We learned how to address it and we learned how to be like, hey, oh wow, I'm attracted to this person. And I, and so, and so there need to be more safeguards perhaps in that interaction and that dynamic. But I think we, we need better conversations about like marital partnership and what that looks like. And what does it mean to like, protect your marriage. And maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. I think first we just have to learn how to be friends with people, right? Because like, I think so much, right? Like we spend so much time talking about like, you know, as a girl who grew up in like conservative church culture, like guys were always just a husband. They were never, they were few, somebody's future spouse always, right? Um, so you never thought about them as friends or brothers or anything like that. And so like, I think sometimes because we've spent so much of our lives being like communicating about this person is like a future spouse. The moment you get along with someone, you think it's romantic. You're like, you know, you could just be friends and you could just like this person, right? Like, and not like romantically, like you could just actually be like, this person is great and they're awesome. Right. And I feel like because we've never taught people how to interact that way, that everything must be romantic. And you're like, no, I just like this person. Like, and that's okay to have this good friend. Nope, nope, Lindsay, you're deceiving people. Like, obviously. You're leading people to hell, Lindsay. I'm a woman pastor. I was already well on my way there, apparently, so. Yeah, yeah, no, Lindsay, guys can't be friends with girls. It's not possible, you know? Like, you you, you guys having friendship with me, clearly it's gonna lead to something because I'm a single guy. Like, it can't happen, apparently. Somebody should tell Jesus and Mary and Martha. Right. That's the thing, right? Like, I'm single, right? I have no concern about accidentally committing adultery with my spouse. Like, that's not a, not possible, right? I accidentally committed adultery. <laughs> like, that just doesn't... You, yeah, you accidentally <laughs> did what? Okay, but that's the thing that everybody's concerned about doing, isn't it? That just reminds me of the Friends episode where Ross sleeps with, you know, like, they're on a break and <laughs> Rachel's like, where, where, where did you mean to put it? Like, <laughs> right. It's like you're not gonna accidentally have a adult an adulterous relationship. Like that's not a thing that just all of a sudden happens. And you've got to be vigilant and like ready. Like if you notice something, like that's your responsibility to then put up safeguards on a specific relationship. Not say it's theoretically possible that it might happen. And so I'm not ever going to meet with any woman ever for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like I used to work at a climbing gym. And so I had a lot of friends that I worked with that were like super fit, super athletic. Like these women all look like supermodels kind of thing. Right. Some of the people like professional climbers who were at the gym. Right. They worked there. They were like sponsored athletes. Right. I am not afraid to see Brett talking to them (laughs) or spending time or working with them. Right. Because it's like and somehow we like I do not view every other like woman as a threat. That would be crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. But I feel like that's what we do. 
It is because the den also does like this unhealth in how we view relationships. Then, then ultimately it does pit, it does pit women against women and, and to a degree men against men. That's like you're it, whether, whether it's men against men and more of like a comparative check out my wife. Um, yeah. You're smoking hot wife from the thing where we're talking about not to objectify women, but you're going to objectify her from the pulpit. Can people not ever use that phrase for the rest of their lives please at least not from the pulpit like there's that's never appropriate not ever not one time in the history of the world is it appropriate to in that way objectify a woman even if she is smoking hot like why the heck does that matter from the pulpit come on yeah especially to like a middle school group of middle schoolers yeah right don't objectify women here i'm going to talk about how hot my wife is so next time she walks past you're going to check out her butt like Seriously? Come on. Yeah, no, there's never a place for that. Like, please don't. So if you're listening to this and you've ever thought remotely you might say that, don't. Yeah, and I think it really was like, and I mean, I, I hate it. Don't get me wrong. And I had it said a couple times when I was in youth group in high school. Uh, I think... The, like the the intent behind the the men who said it was like we're trying to normalize talking about sex and marriage we're trying to t- we're trying to normalize talking about all that normalizes is objectifying a woman down to what she looks like i know i am aware it's like saying modest is hottest you're like i think you're missing the point i know and I totally understand that. I just, I, I under, I, I recognize that like the intent was probably we need to figure out a way to like have these conversations or like have these conversations, but we're doing it terribly. Well, because we're teaching them that when you have these conversations, you're looking at a woman as a thing to be conquered or to be achieved and not a loving relationship to be built. Like looking at a woman as being smoking hot as the reason that you want to bang her. That's the problem. That's the unhealthy thing. Yes, Exactly. All right, do we want to move on now? Probably to an even more depressing topic, if possible. Okay, speaking of, you know, things that you should do to avoid accidentally getting naked and having sex with people, Jerry Falwell Jr. sues Liberty University, says the school damaged his reputation. First of all, that doesn't, that's not going to have any standing because he's a public figure and it has to be demonstrably false and malicious to be slander or libel. So basically, he's just being a whiny baby throwing a temper tantrum. Well, because the, the $10.5 million severance that he got isn't enough. Uh, obviously not. So it's it's not that he had an affair or that his wife had an affair. It's clearly the school for firing him. Yep, that's what's given him a bad name. Not the fact that he will willingly and openly talk about how we need to shoot Muslims before they shoot us. Nope, not that. Nope. It's the whole appearance of evil thing we talked about before. It's like, yeah, I said that, but no one's supposed to know that I said it. Right? It's saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> oh, this quiet part's been said out loud for so long, I sometimes forget it's the quiet part. Just just go back and look at uh, Dobson's letter from 2008 or his broadcast from, you know, Focus on the Family back then. I used to really like Adventures in Odyssey as a kid, and I'm kind of heartbroken right now. I still like Adventures in Odyssey. Adventures in Odyssey is still fine. But I refuse to give him any money. <laughs> oh, that's why I don't li- like, no, I'm not giving him money, but like, I can still enjoy it. I've got some old tapes in the other room from way back when on cassette. Yep, I have some stacks of those. What, what's Adventures in Odyssey? A, a Christian kids radio show. From Focus on the Family or from... Yeah, and Wit was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I just saw one of our one of our like badass women ministers 
in our fellowship just posted the link to like Dobson's article from like the Bill Clinton moral issue thing. And, you know, in, in commentary with... Like, hey, maybe we should be consistent. <laughs> no, 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 because it's not about they are being consistent. Like, that's the thing. They are being 100% consistent with getting worldly power and using what Jesus says to do it. When what Jesus says helps them to get worldly power, by all means, use it. And as soon as it doesn't, throw it by the wayside. It's because they'll, they're happy to wear a cross, but not to bear it. Ooh, that's a great quote. It is. I just came up with it. I was really proud of it. I like it. But that's the problem, right? Like they're willing to take the cross, use it for their advantage. But then as soon as the Christian life is going to cost them something, that's when they're done. That is in Dallas Willard's words, actually what taking the Lord's name in vain means and the divine conspiracy. Yes. Like, okay. So last week we talked about Piper and something we didn't mention in our podcast about Piper. And we'll eventually get back to Jerry Falwell. Um, Piper doesn't work at a church anymore, right? He's retired. Him finally speaking out against Trump cost him nothing besides maybe people subscribing to his blog that he doesn't need to survive because he's got money saved up for retirement. Because he's retired, yeah. He literally, it cost him nothing to do that. And he waited until that point. So that's always fun. But back to back to Jerry Falwell, now that we don't know if we're going to keep in focus on the family stuff, probably will. <laughs> What about, I mean, I do, in in Piper's defense. Oh, not back to Jerry Falwell. Okay. And I think I, I think I said this on the podcast last week, because he did also speak out like against both Trump and Hillary in 2016, which maybe he was still retired at that point. I don't know. <laughs> but it, um, you know, anyway, now we can go back to Jerry Falwell. But I think we have to stop conflating the two. What do you mean? Because both sides isn't an accurate statement when one side is actively claiming to represent Jesus and his kingdom and the other is not. It's like, you came to like, well, they're both bad. You're like, well, that's technically true, but it's actually missing the point, right? Like, and I feel like that's what we do too often is in trying to be fair, we actually end up being misrepresenting what's going on. I'm not saying that you're doing that. I just Almost like with the Billy Graham rule, we try to, by trying to be fair, we actually misrepresent what. And I feel like that's what's happening here with like Falwell, right? Trying to like, he has done some sketchy things and rather than, right? So we have this moment where we absolutely as Christians believe that God's heart is about restoration. However, there is repentance that is a part of that restoration, right? And even in some of the horrific things that have happened with people, David's response to Nathan is heartbreak. He's like, oh crap, what have I done in mourning? And if we're going to be okay, right, that's what we have. That's what we need to see in people. And we don't often have that, like, well, let's just move on. You're like, well, that's not, no, we can't just drop it and move on, right? Like it is not actually godly to just let it be fine. Be like, yeah, sure, whatever, just, that's fine. Not a big deal. I'm like, well, no, it is a big deal, especially for people that have been hurt, right? It's not just, or for, it's not God's, it's not loving or just to just ignore it and move on because the people that have been hurt are still hurt. And yet we can't always undo it, but we can try to make it right as much as we can. Um, and I don't think that we see even honestly, most of the times that we see God interacting in the old Testament, he's like, guys, you wouldn't make it right. So I will. And that's going to cost you something. And if there's going to be consequences and yes, there will be restoration, but there are also consequences as a part of it. And we want forgiveness to be get out of jail free when that is never what it looks like in the Bible. There's always a cost. You have to carry a cross. You have to sacrifice. You have to do what you can to make it right as much as you can. Right. And it's like, I feel like we think that forgiveness just means ignore it and move on. And that is not what it means. And so like when we come to things like follow well, and he's like, well, why can't we just like ignore it and stop talking about it? I'm like, 
well, have you fixed it yet? Right. And we're not saying like, and if the answer is no, then we're not going to drop it yet. Right. And there's a difference between you've done what you can and you've actually tried to make it right. And then we're still holding it over you decades later. Right. However, there's certain people who like, maybe he shouldn't be in charge of things with finances because he's kind of showed himself to be sketchy with them and using them for personal gain. So even when there's forgiveness, he should probably not be an accountant for a large public university or have oversight of those funds, even if he gets to be in positions again, right? You know, the, the classic examples, you don't want someone who's been, you know, convicted of like molesting a child work with children, even if they've been like making things right and rehabilitated, you still don't let them work as a preschool teacher, right? And it doesn't mean that we have not forgiven them. It means that we are not going, we love them enough to not put them in a situation where they can hurt more people because it is bad for them and it's bad for the people they could hurt. Right. And it's like, I feel like that's what we have to look at as we're looking at these things with Falwell and things like that is not, are we not letting him move on? But it's like, is he actually trying to move on or is he just trying to avoid the consequences of his actions? Like, does he want to be forgiven or does he want to just get away scot-free? Because those are not the same thing. (laughs) I don't think. Well, and and I think, I think it comes down back to like kind of what you said with David's with the illustration with David and Nathan, that when his sin is called out, or we can look at it with Peter when his sin is, when he realizes that he's rejected Jesus or whatever, um, whichever word, rejected, uh, denied knowing him. Like the response to, to, to sin being uncovered in that way is, is, to, is to be humble and like heartbreaking and, and those things, like you, like you said. And that's what, that's what we don't see in in much of like of much of christian leadership period they're not sorry they sinned they're sorry they got caught right and so and there's not that responsibility that is brought in and it's it's hard to do to be like i don't say it lightly because i recognize that it's difficult and it's humiliating and it's and it feels terrible when it, especially somebody who is in like a top leadership type position gets called out or caught to, to own that. And, and so, but like Caleb said, too many, too many Christians are willing to wear a cross, but not to bear it. And, and that's what, that's what we're called to do. And part of that is recognizing our own fallibility and being able to, to own it and to repent and to, to come forward hat in hand and say, I effed up and, and own it. Um, even if, uh, like, I don't, because of the other like text messages and screenshots and stuff that they have, I don't buy that he wasn't a part of the of the affair with his wife and the guy. Like, it, there there's there's pictures, there's FaceTime screenshots, there's things that indicate that he knew and was complicit in it in some way. But I lost my train of thought. Hold on. Yeah. So I think the thing with Jerry Falwell Jr. It's in the Washington Post article that's shared here is the thing that he's suing them for is making false statements or for accepting false statements without verifying them, which I mean, I don't really know, like, maybe they didn't verify the claims. Maybe there were some amount of false claims, like maybe there's truth in that on some level. Like, you know, I'll give Jerry Falwell Jr. the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there is. But there's also truth that he's consistently acted in a way that is unbecoming of a president of a Christian university. Even if those claims are, even if those claims were false, there are 
enough other claims that are not going to have like defamed him. So I remembered what I was going to say. <laughs> even if he didn't know about the affair, even if he, whatever, like part of being in a position of power and authority and modeling humility is to be able to say, like, apologize for what you can. Apologize for, and maybe that's my like first rule of like conflict 101. It's like, there's always something that you can apologize for. Even if it feels like you shouldn't, like there's, even if it grates on, I mean, there's there's one situation that I can say in my life that I, with, with, a, with another like person I was mentoring that like, I wouldn't, I would have, like, there's nothing else I would have done differently in that situation. Like, I can look back and go, I don't think I could actually apologize for much, but I tried. And, and, and Falwell has never demonstrated that, nor has that been a culture of power within Christian leadership or a culture within the power structure of Christian leadership. Thanks for listening to the Barely Saved Podcast. Make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes, links, and show notes at barelysavepodcast.com. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. I will get this uploaded, and I'll talk to you later.